The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. And a special welcome to anybody who's at the center for the first time. Feel free to come up afterward and introduce yourself or connect with Judy, our program host, in the back corner by the door. If you have any questions, she can fill you in. So we've been um, discussing now for quite a while these ten beautiful qualities of heart. In Buddhism, it's called this list is called the ten paramis, the ten beautiful qualities, or it's, you know, in terms of the structure of the teachings, you know, the story, the legend is in order to awaken, in order to be a, a fully awake person, and be able to share what you've come to realize, then you need to develop these 10 qualities in your personality. So we can choose any one of them. The interesting thing is if you just develop one to its perfection or its full glory, like generosity, all the other beautiful qualities have to be developed in order to perfect any one of them. So the 10 again, let's see if I can get them all. So there's generosity, and there's renunciation, and there's this commitment to non-harming. Sila is the Pali word. Truthfulness, energy, wisdom, resoluteness, equanimity, loving kindness, and patience. Not in that order, but those are the ten. So we've been looking at energy or effort the last few weeks. I think tonight's the last week, so maybe this is week five or six that we've been talking about energy and effort. We spent a lot of time because... Nothing happens without effort. And here's the kicker. All the bad things that we see being expressed in our own mind and body, heart, and also all the bad things we see out in the world, that also happens because of effort. So effort in this sense is neutral, right? Through effort, through energy is how we set in motion everything that's bad and everything that's beautiful. So it really makes sense then that what's really important is the wisdom behind effort. Not can we make effort. You know, There's a lot of, I don't know what you want to call it, ignorant effort or unwise effort or effort that's simply coming out of our habit energies. I'm doing it because that's what I've been conditioned to do. I'm trying to earn as much money as I can or try to have as much power as I can or, you know, have the biggest car in the neighborhood or whatever it is that we, the strongest body, the most youthful look, the most impressive resume. So we get competitive because we think that that sort of accumulation of this or that leads to happiness, some sense of safety or whatever it might be. So over the last several weeks, we've been looking like, well, what is this wise effort? And the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this particular simile the Buddha used a lot, central to his teachings on effort and energy, about feeding and starving are the words that are often used to translate the words that he used. How do we, because our mind is 
lawful, like the different qualities we experience, we see in our mind, the wholesome qualities, the unwholesome qualities, they arise, they show up lawfully. So, and in a way, everything that's at play right now, like the attitude of my mind right now, the particular qualities that are present in my mind right now, they're already here. So, in terms of skillful effort, it really matters how I'm going to relate to what's here. And if the way I relate, let's say I'm feeling really defensive right now or really irritated right now or really in need, like needing you to respond to me in a certain way right now, wanting some, expecting some kind of response. So if I relate to that by taking it personally, well, then there are certain consequences to what gets set in motion, how it turns out for me. Or if I relate with a real sense of equanimity, whether it's just that quality being known. It's just that quality being known. It's not personal. It's arising because of causes and conditions. So there's a real spectrum in any moment how we relate. And then back to this metaphor of feeding and starving. So through observation, through mindful observation, we can see that when I relate to these unwholesome attitudes in my mind and this way, do they get stronger? When I relate to these wholesome qualities of mind in this way, do they get stronger? So what feeds the unwholesome qualities in the mind? What feeds the wholesome qualities? What weakens the unwholesome qualities? What weakens the wholesome qualities? In other words, we're just learning how it all works. If our mind, if we live in a lawful universe, and then that means even internally in terms of the activity of our own mind, that that's also lawful. It's not random. Things are unfolding in a way that can be discerned. We can, if we pay a careful enough attention, we can really get how it is that my mind ends up in really difficult, contracted, negative states. How it ends up in really beautiful, expanded, loving, wise states. And how, this is the important thing, how I can feed those wholesome states, develop them and maintain beautiful, wholesome, stable, clear states of mind. And how I can weaken and starve negative states of mind, like being aversive or irritated or self-righteous or judgmental or needy, always wanting something more, always needing something more, needing something different. Just because my mind might be in a really difficult or negative state doesn't mean there's nothing to do about it. The thing to do about it is to pay attention. Oh yeah, this is a contracted state of mind. And then to have that very skillful curiosity. I wonder how this mind can relate to the way it is right now in a way that would actually diminish the unskillfulness of this mind state, weaken it, cause it to fall out of the mind, to be abandoned. Or we notice a weak but wholesome quality, like a little bit of gratitude, just a little corner of gratitude, right? 
And then it would be very natural for a wise person to wonder, I wonder how I might relate to this gratitude in a way that might cause it to really bloom and expand and basically take over the mind. So the mind would be strongly characterized by the flavor of gratitude or compassion or patience or any number of the wholesome qualities. To begin to comprehend, to get, we live in a lawful universe. So much of what's unfolding we're not in control of. Like, I'm not in control of this personality, but in this moment, what's at play is how I'm relating to the personality that's showing up right now, to whatever tendency of my personality has gotten triggered and is arising. How I understand it, how I relate to that, that matters. And that's what we can do. And that really goes to this teaching on feeding and starving. And so what I'd recommend um, as I'm talking and then as we're sharing together at the end of the program tonight, that you just bring to mind, get interested in just one positive, wholesome quality. It might be something you're not already good at, or it could just as easily be one of those wholesome qualities that you see more regularly in your mind. You're already, it's already got some momentum in your personality. Maybe you just, because of your upbringing or who knows what, tend to be quite generous or tend to be kindly, tender and and gentle or tend to be really clear, have a really clear mind. So then the the question you might have is, okay, I'm going to take this up. The Buddha says that it's possible to develop and maintain beautiful qualities of mind, wholesome qualities of mind, so that they get deeply established in the mind, become, you know, you could say a power. And like I said earlier, when one of these wholesome qualities get developed, you'll notice a lot of other wholesome qualities, like the good friends of that wholesome quality. Like, it's hard to be really generous without also being really mindful. How will I know how to respond in a wholehearted, generous way if I'm not radically present with the way things are. And you need a lot of renunciation to be generous. And so many of the other qualities need to be there. So it would be nice if, you know, during the talk that we come upon one or two wholesome qualities that we're, for whatever reason, interested in and we resolve in our mind, okay, I'm going to become a student of that particular quality. I'm going to keep it in mind. Because as it turns out, you know, when you do this practice for a while, it's amazingly potent to keep a wholesome quality in mind. So let's just say you've taken up, like, your, you know, your qualities. I'm just going to really be interested in truthfulness, like living in a really honest way, really care have that integrity around being truthful to myself and and what I say and how I respond. And it's just interesting how that resolve, that intention, it's like in Buddhism we always say intentions matter. This is the teaching of karma. Karma means that the, the translation of the word karma is intentions matter. Intentional thoughts, words, and actions 
set things in motion, right? Because every intentional action makes an imprint, has an effect on the mind stream, like how the mind, the mind that's unfolding. Now this mind right now that is unfolding for me, this mind is the mind that thought that thing earlier today or did that thing earlier today or said that thing earlier today. So the mind stream right now giving the talk, the words that I'm saying, how I'm showing up in this moment, is the mind that did all that stuff before. That's, this is the expression of all of those previous intentional actions, thoughts, words, deeds. So we want to experiment with uh, learning how to feed, learning how to develop and maintain beautiful qualities of mind. And this is great. So then instead of envy, when you see somebody who just seems really relaxed in their life or really fearless, like not afraid to be who they are as a human being, imperfect, perfect, whatever, they're all their different qualities, happy with their body, you know, able to be content with the conditions in their life, then you might know, oh, instead of thinking, you know, why not me? Why that person? The attitude we should have is whatever I recognize, whatever wholesome quality I recognize in that other person, that is expressing itself lawfully. That is a lawful arising in their personality. And if this mind is willing to take the time to understand the lawfulness, that same beautiful quality can be set in motion in this personality. It may take 20 years, it may take 20 lifetimes, or it may just take a few weeks. But it can be set in motion because personalities are a lawful unfolding. So whatever wisdom, whatever ease, whatever kindness, whatever strength do you see in other people, instead of hating them for being having something that's nice, we could be, oh, thanks for reminding me of what's possible. I mean, that's why we put people on an altar like the statue of the Buddha or whoever you might put there. It's the reminding us like, you know, the idea, the posture is somebody who's right in the middle. That's sort of the uprightness of the, po- of the statues, you know. That's uh, sort of a metaphor, a symbol of being right in the middle of life, alert, unafraid. And, you know, the artists try to convey a sense of serenity, like being at ease, being right in the middle, being upright, clearly aware, but not afraid. And some of the mudras, like this mudra, in the right hand, means, honey, you don't need to be afraid. It's okay. That's what it means. So the, the idea of these symbols is like, oh, well, if he can do it, or if she can do it, well, then maybe I can do it too. Maybe that quality of being fearless is available. Well, and then we just start. You know, we start by realizing directly in our experience that the fear can be prevented and abandoned and the fearlessness can be developed and maintained. And even if you don't have a clue how to go about that, like let's say you choose for your quality that you want to resolve to develop, 
fearlessness, right? So even if you don't have a clue, even just through trial and error, like if you're tracking the degree of fearlessness or fearfulness as you go through the day, and you're just starting to correlate like what your mind is doing and the fear getting more established in you, or what you're doing and the fear dissipating, going away, and more fearlessness, confidence arising. Just through observing, tracking in a, with some continuity, you'll learn a lot about how to feed fearlessness, how to starve fearfulness. We learn a lot just through trial and error. But the, remember, to do that, there has to be this tracking mechanism. And that's what mindfulness is. This non-judging, because if we're busy judging ourselves for not being fearless, well, we can't really understand the causes for fearlessness and the causes for fearfulness. So we have to be in this non-judging, radically relaxed, right? Because if we're tight, it gets in the way of learning, of observing the lawfulness of what comes and goes in our mind. And this is a very different approach because normally, in terms of perfecting ourselves and becoming a good person, we have this attitude, I've got to get in there, you know, and I've got to make it happen. I've got to get in there and get rid of the bad stuff and get in there and build up the good stuff. But a lot of that directed activity comes from aversion. Like, I don't like being who I am, and that's motivating me to go fix myself. But instead, it's much more, uh, we've got this natural process happening here. It's called me. So me, in terms of this personality, it's a natural process. You know, so like when you're gardening, you want to work with the forces of nature. You don't want to have to do all the work yourself. You know, like, you've got this perfectly fine yard with good soil, sunshine, periodic rain, you know, a lot of the conditions you need to grow a good garden. But you say, forget that. I'm going to build a building, you know, and then and I'm going to build this little generator that makes electricity, you know, and I'm going to make these light bulbs, you know, and I'm going to distill the water out of the air so it gets... So you... You know, what, boy, does that, that's stressful and complicated and difficult. But if we decide instead to work with what's already happening, well, then it's a little bit easier. So it's just a nice story. You know, I'm not saying it's metaphysically true, but it's a very useful, skillful story to have that all of the ingredients for freedom, awakening, being a wise and kind human being. They're all here. Maybe they're a little latent. Maybe they're obscured in different ways. But all the ingredients for what the heart truly desires to be loving and free, free from fear, completely engaged, giving this life away in a way that's liberating, We don't need a different personality or a different life situation 
you know, sometimes you think, oh, I should have started when I was in my 20s. Now I'm in my, you know, fill in the blank. And we can create all kinds of reasons why it's not going to happen for me. The happiness, the freedom, the love that I aspire to isn't going to happen. Well, absolutely, if you have that attitude, it's absolutely not going to happen. But if we have the attitude, everything we need to be a loving, free, wise, engaged human being, skillful human being is here, you see, immediately we want to start like playing with the system. Like, well, well how, how can I realize that? How can I help set that emotion? If all the ingredients are here, what do I need to do? Well, we need to pay attention. And we need, in a way, we need a map to help us recognize the wholesome qualities. And the maps don't, you know, there's any number of ways to map out the wholesome qualities. In the same way, in the previous weeks, we talked about mapping out the unwholesome. So one of the easy maps to memorize are the five hindrances. The five ways that these mental qualities can hinder the steadiness and clarity of the mind. Like being greedy. When the mind is absorbed, obsessed with greediness, it's not easy to be clearly aware. Or anger irritation, aversion, or too much energy, restlessness and worry, too little energy, being dull, having a lot of mental inertia or sleepiness, or being caught up in doubt. Well, we can map the wholesome qualities in the same way, and then that that map helps us recognize, right? So it's useful to have a conceptual map because it helps the curiosity of the mind recognize, oh, this is equanimity. This is serenity. Oh, this is rapture or joy. Oh, this is what the Buddha meant by energy, by the quality of investigation or the quality we call mindfulness, concentration or stillness of the mind. So I just mentioned the seven factors. So this is the list I would recommend that you memorize. And if you just Google uh, seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment, You'll get this in Wikipedia or one of the Buddhist websites. But again, and they actually work in a linear way, so it can help you remember. So mindfulness is sort of the governing factor of these seven factors, these seven wholesome factors. And the way the Buddha talks about these seven factors is when they're present in the mind and in balance, because three of them are energizing and three of them are tranquilizing, investigation, energy, and rapture, or the energizing ones, serenity or tranquility, concentration or stillness, and equanimity are the tranquilizing, calming factors. So when they're in balance, with mindfulness being the sort of balancing factor, because it knows like if it's in balance or not, it's, it's reflecting how it is, it's knowing how it is. So when they're in balance, then the mind is going to have insight. It's going to see what it hasn't seen before. It's going to wake up. So waking up is synonymous with being free because being caught up in contracted states happens because the mind doesn't know better. It isn't seeing clearly. But when the mind sees clearly, it sees, don't need to hold on to that. Don't need to be obsessing with this. The letting go happens when the mind sees. 
Letting go doesn't happen because we want to let go. It happens when we see. So you could memorize this list of seven factors and just knowing this list is enlivening. In fact, in the tradition, when one of the nuns, like back at the time of the Buddha, or one of the monks was sick or dying, what traditionally they do is they'd have one of their friends come by and chant the teachings on the seven factors of awakening. So now you can try this. Next time you're sick with the flu, you call up one of your Dharma friends, one of your friends that practices, and you just have them sit there and say, okay, honey, remember mindfulness? Just think about that for a moment. And how about this capacity in our hearts to be interested, to actually connect because we're interested in what's happening? Or how about the energy, right? The energy to persist, to stick with what's wholesome. How about the joy that comes when the mind is wholehearted, right? The rapture that arises when we're really committed to something good. We all know that joy. Even when you're playing with one of your friends, playing tennis or backgammon, playing with your dog or cat, but you're really there 100%, you'll feel joy because that's what comes out of 100% commitment to something that's wholesome, not harming anybody. You'll feel some rapture, some joy. Remember the feeling of serenity, that inner ease, that inner release of the heart, the heart that feels safe enough to put down the load? Remember that, honey? You know, and then how about stillness? Remember those times when the mind felt perfectly still and clear and peaceful? Remember that feeling, that quality of equanimity where you were just happy to let things unfold as they do? Happy to let things play out as they do? That person with those terrible flu symptoms would feel better just remembering these seven qualities of the mind. You'd have to go through the list a few times, right? So, this is what I mean about choosing one or a few of the wholesome qualities. And then the work is to keep bringing it to mind through the day and a few times during your sit, too. So, for some of you, like I said, it might be equanimity, it might be serenity, putting down the load, relaxing the heart. Not thinking you have to somehow hold up self-importance right now. I don't have to be tight right now, right? Do you have to be tight right now? Maybe later when you have to negotiate something, it may be a little harder to put it down. But right now, sitting together in the room like we all are, it's really okay to allow a sense of contentedness. Like, we're already here. It wouldn't feel right to leave before the program ends. So why not be a little bit serene or content or at ease or tranquil? Like, okay, we're here at 8.30. And I'm just going to surrender, submit, allow this to be. So, and we could just play with that quality all day long. Like, what, what does serenity look like now? You're in traffic. Well, I wonder what 
like real curiosity. I wonder what serenity would look like now. I'm just using serenity as an example. It could be generosity. What would a generous spirit of the heart look like now? So the theme tonight is how do we develop and maintain wholesome qualities of mind? Well, we have to be interested in it. Interested enough to keep bringing it to mind. And then you'll notice how it's there already in the moment, even though it might be just as a seed. It's not necessarily going to be fully developed right now in the mind. But if you pay attention to it, it's like watering it. And it brings up this really important principle that you can count on, but you have to check it out for yourself. And it's just, it's as central to the practice as almost any of the principles coming out of the Buddhist teachings. And that is, when we bring mindfulness, or a little bit more than mindfulness, what we call wise attention. It's uh, made a big deal of. So that means it's not just, you know, mindfulness in a more technical sense is this reflectiveness of the mind. So the mind, the knowing mind, is simply reflecting back. It's like this. But then it, to be really wise attention that reflectiveness has to be steady, it has to persist, and it has to be interested in like cause and effect, what's getting set in motion. As I'm observing, as I'm reflecting, it's like this, with some persistence, some continuity, I'm discerning, this is the active part of wise attention, what, like, is something wholesome getting set in motion, given what my mind is doing, how it's relating, or it's a contracted state getting set in motion. So if, we're, if we have wise attention and we're being wisely attentive to some unwholesome quality, the basic principle says that unwholesome quality will begin to weaken and disappear. Now, like I said, this is something for each of us to check out. Is that actually true? So when you're next time you're really caught up in anger or really caught up in lust, is it true that if we bring a wise attention to that, that means with some continuity and this discerning, so we're seeing what's getting set in motion, does that wise attention cause it, if we're patient enough, to break apart, to fall away? And here's the corollary. What happens when we bring wise attention to a wholesome quality of mind? like we're feeling generous or we're feeling kindly, gentle, tender, or feeling patient, equanimous. And then we notice that it's that way and we remember right this principle and we're going to check it out. So we, okay, I'm going to be clearly aware of this experience of patience that I notice, I'm noticing right now, intimate. I'm not going to be trying to develop the patience. I'm just going to be aware of it discerning that it's skillful, aware of it in a continuous way, sticking to it, sticking sticking with that awareness of it, and just see, does the patience get stronger, more potent, more momentum, more expansive as a presence in the mind? Is it really that simple? That wholesome qualities, which also mean pleasant qualities, develop simply by paying attention in this wise way, and the unwholesome qualities 
are abandoned simply by paying attention in this wise way. I mean, that's pretty amazing if that's really what it's about. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to bring wise attention, especially when we're really deeply caught up in one of our negative habits, whatever it might be. Like if we've been obsessing for a couple hours with our blaming mind, complaining mind, self-righteous mind, we might have to have a lot of patience when we bring the attention, that wise attention, to what it's like to be self-righteous or, you know, caught up in self-hatred or whatever it might be. But this is where confidence comes in. Like if you, from your own checking it out, you have a lot of confidence that this principle is true. Bringing wise attention to unwholesome qualities causes them to be abandoned. Bringing wise attention to wholesome qualities causes them to get stronger and more uh, integrated, more developed in the mind then you're willing to be patient. Like, I don't care how long it takes, this depressive, resigned, helpless feeling, if I can be there without being seduced by it. So this non-judging, non-fearful, clear, steady, continuous quality of awareness with it. Another way to say this is, can you stay angry and be aware that aware in a very clear way that you're angry. Can anger continue when we're fully aware of it? Will kindness go away if we're fully aware of it? You know, I was really aware of kindness and all of a sudden I got angry. You'll notice that when that happens, and it does happen, it's like we were there, there was kindness, and we were aware of it, we were aware of it, And then the mind took a little detour and got caught in some thought which triggered the anger and there it was. And then we got, you know, identified and started to proliferate with the anger. So we lost the thread of kindness. We forgot to continue to notice it. It's like essential that we don't get complacent with the beautiful qualities that do show up. I mean, everybody's personality has a few wholesome strands to it, right, at least. And our responsibility is to be awake, to notice the beautiful qualities, because that's what will allow them to blossom, not to forget them. I read at the half-day retreat on Saturday, I won't be able to paraphrase it very well, but it's such a popular poem, I'm guessing many of you have heard it, by Galway Canal, St. Francis in the Sow. Many people know that poem? Look it up. I'm sure you can get it on the internet. St. Francis and the Sow, S-O-W. Galway Canal is a famous um, poet. I think he just died this last year. And um, one part of the poem is it's uh, how St. Francis retaught the Sow in touch and in words its loveliness, right? St. Francis puts his hand on the creased forehead of the Sow you know, and takes in the sow, all of its pigness, right? And the little piglets sucking on the 14 teeth underneath and just describing the body of the sow, the female pig, and, uh, and reteaching it its loveliness, right? 
That's what we need to do. We have to keep seeing that this capacity to love, this capacity to include, this capacity to be clear, this capacity to be unafraid, to be patient with what's not easy to be patient with, that these are just waiting, these qualities are waiting to reawaken in the heart. But if we don't have even a little confidence, we won't check it out. You know, we'll just feel a little bit helpless. Like, yeah, sometimes I feel generous, but mostly I'm stingy. Well, maybe we need to make it a project to be able to see the generosity even before it's fully developed. And maybe notice that by noticing, even if it's a weak tendency, noticing the tendency to be generous may cause it to strengthen, to sort of express itself more in our personality. Maybe it's because we've neglected noticing these qualities. That's the reason we don't see them very much. And maybe we see anger and impatience and irritation because we don't look at them. You know why we don't look at the unwholesome in this careful way, this mindful way? Because they're unpleasant. So we think by ignoring them, they're going to go away or getting absorbed or we try to think our way out of them. So being intimate with anger doesn't mean thinking about anger because that never helps or almost always doesn't help. But actually feeling what it feels like to be angry really helps. It's in the same way. It really helps. When you're holding a really hot pan, it really helps to know that it's hot. Because when you really get that it's hot, letting go happens. And it's exactly the same with anger. We have to be intimate. Oh, it feels like this. Being angry feels like this, looks like this. Then the letting go will happen. Or being patient, being kindly feels like this. Well, the heart just gives itself. It turns toward it. It lets it in because it sees how this is the way. I trust this. So I'll leave it here. I know we didn't have that much time last week and it's good to hear because this is the last week we'll be talking about effort and energy. So any stories, it's, we learn quite a bit from hearing from each other about actual stories of abandoning, preventing unwholesome states from getting established in our minds developing and maintaining beautiful qualities of mind, or the opposite, like when we got trapped and caught in unwholesome states, because we'll learn from your mistakes, or you know, when we lost really wholesome states, we were in a really beautiful place, and then we wanted it to last forever, and we lost it. The greed of wanting it to last forever was the cause for it to go away. These are good stories to hear, and of course, any questions that you have... And remember to point the mic right at your mouth. It's a directional mic. So who'd like to begin? Yeah, all the way in the back, Kermit. Yeah, here's a a wholesome quality that I would really like to develop. Sympathetic joy, the idea that you can be truly happy 
about somebody who has something more than I have or has some of the things that I lo- feel I've lost. Um, I mean, that doesn't even seem like a noticeable quality. I mean, it just, how, how, how do you do that? What's the starting point for that? Well, the key is to recognize it as it's actually arising already in your life. And even though you may think it's not, there are moments when it's relatively accessible. You see, let's say you have a cat at home, and the cat finds a little spot of sunshine and does that thing cats do in the sunshine, you know, kind of instead of being all wrapped up together, it sort of expands its body. Now, why? how far of a stretch is it for our heart in that moment to go, may your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. It's not that hard, you know. And we could, you know, join the cat and do it with the cat, (laughs) share the little spot of sun. May our happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. And even like looking around the room tonight, the fact that we all had the inclination to come here tonight instead of doing whatever else we do, you know, it's like this is a really cool group of people to be with tonight, people who are interested enough in the heart and mind to want to pay attention to it. You know, may that good intention that got all of us here tonight, may that intention strengthen. You know, may it increase. May it really lead us all to happiness. So appreciative joy, it's really a failure of imagination uh, rather than, you know, it just isn't there in my life. We just have to notice that actually it's not that far away. And it's very close, as you probably can guess, Kermit, to gratitude. You know, just gratitude for the health that we have. Or gratitude for the clarity of our mind. Like, to know that you'd like to have more sympathetic joy, more appreciative joy in your life. That itself is beautiful. You could be grateful just for the fact that you recognize that that would be nice. Like, you're capable of imagining yourself with more appreciative joy. Even that is something to appreciate. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, and then Ollie over here. You talked about being aware of the, the negative. What happens when you get really angry and you feel you've got a justification for anger and you're aware of, I'm angry, and I know you're really aware of the anger, and you say, well, but I have a right to be angry, but I'm aware of that, you know, that, that kind of conflict. Yeah. yeah. This is where we have to remember our deepest aspiration. And, and again, these, it helps to memorize. So when you ask yourself sincerely, like, what is this life about, or what do I really care about? You, you have to be ready with an answer. I care about the unconditional release of my heart, like the full release, the heart not bound up at all. So then when I'm angry and I feel justified, I'll notice my heart is bound up. And then I'll remember, like, that's not in line with my aspiration. I want to be able to live, to be engaged, to show up in my life and not be bound up like I'm feeling right now. So however justified this anger is, 
I have to decide on my allegiance. Am I in allegiance to the justification I have for my anger, or am I in allegiance with this deeper aspiration? I aspire to the unbinding, the unbound heart, the heart that's released, released in love, released in clarity. Because that's a more resonant vision for me than getting even, you know. It's like, it's so weird with anger. It's like, it's like somehow we're punishing them with our contraction, you know. Oh, you, uh, and that, like, it's, I mean, at least we should just go hurt them, right? <laughs> Instead of just like causing our, but it's, it's really strange how we do that. And we can trust that nature has a way of giving us all what we need. It's perfect. So if somebody is actually being unskillful, their unskillfulness is their own punishment. They don't need anybody else to punish them. Right? So we can really let go that nobody needs to get tight because somebody was unskillful. Next time you're watching the news and you're hearing a politician being unskillful, remember this. Like, getting tight doesn't change things. It just makes yourself tight. Why can't we be relaxed when somebody's being unskillful? What's the danger in that? Does it mean we, if something needs to be said, if we're the person who needs to say something in that situation, being relaxed will only give us more clarity in saying what needs to be said. We don't need to be tight to be forceful, to be strong. We can act out of love and compassion. That can be quite strong to speak truth to power or to do what needs to be done. Thanks for bringing that up, Ali. Yeah, Jeremy. One on Tom and then Jeremy. Yeah, I had a story. Um, I thought I was doing pretty well with most of this, and then I took a long-term substitute teaching job in 6th, <laughs> 7th, and 8th grade. <laughs> I almost don't have to say what happened, <laughs> but um, I was just unglued about the third day. I, I was like, wild. It was like it was an incredible experience, and I have five more days, so please be with me. But um, it it uh, brought me to a lot of. I mean, you have issues around being. Um, responsible, that they're not going to run into the street when you go over to the gymnasium, all kinds of things that just one after another, it is exhausting. And I felt really, really um, backslidden in my pursuit of trying to be uh, kind of calm and serene and, and open. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also taught fifth and sixth grade a long time Do you ago. want to come with me next time? <laughs> Yeah, and I saw things arise. I, I remember one day just thinking, oh my God, that's my dad. And I had a good dad, but just getting angry at a sixth grade boy. And then just like the voice, and it was like a shock. Like, that's, that's my dad when he was angry at me. Yeah, but the, it's still a beautiful aspiration, even though we can't fulfill it completely, to be completely unafraid, completely at ease, but remember, it's not about being the perfect sixth grade teacher. It's about being at ease, being the imperfect sixth grade teacher and the humiliation of being imperfect and yelling 
you know, and using strategies that don't work or just make it worse. Being at ease with that, being forgiving with that, being patient with that, being understanding with that. Like the limitations of what can happen in that situation. Being, a, I mean, it's like beyond graduate level mindfulness practice. <laughs> My first thought was, what were you thinking? <laughs> That's why you retire, so you don't have to do that. <laughs> Actually, I was being kind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good. So that's that's what you that's what you rest back into. Like I'm doing the best I can because I care. Thanks, Tom, for sharing that. And I think Jeremy's going to go next. And maybe somebody on this side of the room. Um. So I just wanted to share a little um, experience to um, add to what you said about how if if there's even a little bit of uh, a positive um, emotion or or state that you know noticing it will help it to grow and um, i 'm kind of just by nature um, easy to see gratitude or you know i'm it 's just easy for me um, for some reason and um, I teach as well, but I teach one on one and um, so for the last several years, I start every lesson with my students by asking them to tell me something they're happy about. Um, and for some students, it's really hard. I mean, they, they can't think of anything, and I just keep telling them to try. And uh, even if they say, well, can I tell you something bad or that I'm not? <laughs> and I say, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you can tell me two things that you're happy about. <laughs> and, um, and I had a student the other day. Um, I mean, after all these years, no one's ever asked me why I do it. But a student did finally. I mean, he said, why do you do this every week? And I said, well, um, it's like if you were working at a factory sorting you know, things were coming by you on a conveyor belt and your job was to pick out the imperfected, uh, imperfect pieces, over time you'd get really good at finding those. You'd just be able to, you know, snap them up really quickly. And um, so you're training yourself to see those. And so if, if you can train your mind to see the positive things, you'll notice them more and more. And um, and I said we learn better when we're happy, and it's more fun, you know. So, anyways, that was just I, I, I've noticed that in my own experience as well. Even if I'm kind of naturally that way, again, just noticing it makes it even more so. Yeah. so. That's a great summary of the talk. I mean, all, all the whole essence is right there. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, all the way in the back here. Maybe you could say your name uh, for us when you get the mic. Uh, I'm Claire. Um, I have a question. What if uh, one of your strengths is being compassionate and empathetic um, and you're working on that, but you're also working on someone else's or you want to be compassionate and empathetic towards someone else's energy, um, but it's also consuming um it's hard to find the balance between the two. So I'm just wondering about those two energies. Yeah. But the, the thing about these qualities that we develop, like compassion, they're, um, <clears throat> it's not, we don't 
work on compassion for you. We work on the quality of compassion. And it's, it has its own intelligence, its own wisdom. And it, it will notice suffering wherever it is. So as you're attending to this person because you're sensitive to their suffering, if things get out of balance, why wouldn't the compassion that's alive in your heart notice your suffering? Notice that it's not skillful being out of balance, giving too much, let's say. And then immediately start responding to your own needs because they happen to be more proximate, more um, like alive in that moment. And so compassionate doesn't have an agenda to help somebody versus somebody else. This is what we mean, like when we talk about love or any of the qualities of love, they're not, we may start, like find it by bringing somebody to mind and that helps us find the feeling of compassion or the experience of compassion. But once we kind of get a sense of the reality of compassion, it's, it's independent of the particular person. And that's really what you want to develop and maintain a compassion, a sensitivity that's not specific to somebody who's suffering. Although you may notice it when you're around that person in regards to that person. But it's really happy to respond to suffering in any form wherever it notices it, including in your own life. Yeah. And a lot of times our mind, we, we think we have to direct the love or compassion, but we really want to trust it. So then if we're noticing our own, like we want to appreciate our own goodness or take care of our own suffering, we don't want to feel guilty about it. We want to be like appreciate that the compassion is doing what it's supposed to do. It's meeting suffering and desiring to respond to it in a skillful way. Thanks for bringing that up. Any last quick comment? We have just a minute or so. Anything else comes to mind? Yeah, please. Want to pass it around the room? Maybe walk it over neck. It's all the way in the corner. You get the last word. Um, My name is Somi, and I guess I would say back on that comment about the compassion towards self, I think what's been one of my biggest obstacles is when you said you're practicing these uh, qualities, you have to be able to also come to terms with some of the unpleasant things. And so in the barrier of trying to work in self-compassion, I think uh, to be able to deeply accept that for myself, I have to confront a lot of unpleasant things along with messages that are always inundated about um, how much we deserve or happiness comes from external things. And so I think that's been a big work in process is it's much easier to give to others for some reason because maybe you don't have to confront their unpleasantness and you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. But on the path towards self-compassion, you get into a lot of dark places that nobody really wants to spend any time in sometimes. Yeah, on the surface, they're dark and unpleasant. But not running from what's dark and unpleasant is liberating. So it's, it's paradoxical because you're right. It really is unpleasant. It's probably as unpleasant as anything is, really. But if, 
but we don't want to, that's not the end of the story. It also is so wonderful not to have to stay in denial or have to run or be closed down to this, right? To be able to turn toward it. Not forever. Could be initially just more like touch and go. Like we just acknowledge it, acknowledge the truth of those patterns, and then we redirect the attention away. And then we come back and we just touch it maybe a little bit longer, a little bit more deeply. So we don't want to set up an agenda that I've got to be with that difficult stuff 100% because that may be asking too much. But we can aspire to get there, but we have to be patient. It may take some time. And the key is to notice how liberating, how enlivening it is to do that kind of work, as difficult as it is. Thanks so much for sharing. And let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. And it's also really nice to take a few seconds and remember our ancestors, all the women and men before us who had busy lives complicated lives, who developed their practice of awareness and love, developed real insight, wisdom in their lives, and then passed it along. And now we're the next generation. We're hearing these teachings. We're doing our best to develop them in our busy lives. And it's our responsibility in order to take care of our own well-being, but to be causes for peace and happiness in the world. Now it's our turn to develop the practice, to gain insight, and to model it in all of our places in our lives. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.